Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And this is Melissa. Well, welcome to... the last name. Uh, <laughs> very good. Um, <laughs> welcome to Unboxing Story, where we were transmitting from the bowels of Mars. Uh, you might hear the devil bird screeching in the background. Um, there, yeah, that's him. Um, <laughs> welcome to Unboxing Story, where we unpack fiction without the friction. It is very hot, but... Yes. We're doing this for you, pleasant viewers, so that there's not like a... And because John is a slave driver. <laughs> no comment. Um, uh, we have so many things to share with the people. First of all, you went to British Mc... Fairyland. With, with all of you, with all of your... Yes, friends. all of the ladies in our family went to see Downton Abbey, and it was lovely. Um, if you Downton have... Abbey, the movie, the game, the... I would play that game. <laughs> I would totally, it would be an RPG, and you'd have to pick <laughs> if you were a servant or, or, or above stairs, and you'd have to navigate society. It would be a really hard game. So, usually, we do episodes about specific things. But every now and again we like to um check every it out. now and again the specific thing stinks. <laughs> so we decided to do other things that were much more interesting. I, I believe that is the heat talking. <laughs> I think rather <laughs> um there's not one thing that I think you can talk about for a long period. And rather we either both want to nerd out about or uh mention and it's we we are so passionate about the thing that we just want you to watch it as opposed to going on and on about the thing. Yes. Um anyway, so I you, would play a Downton Abbey game. <laughs> anyway. It's a very good movie. <laughs> you did have to have known you have to have been into the show to enjoy the movie, I think. Mm -hmm. Because they don't really start with I establishing a lot of the characters right so, so you don't that, know who they are already. that's what i that's as somebody that did not watch and does not really it doesn't it's it's strange because it seems to me like one of the reasons why it exists is just to recreate this period of history it doesn't really seem like there's a specific it's like an ensemble thing right about being about like royalty or or the what do you call nobility. that? Nobility. They're not royalty. They're nobility. What is, nobility. That's what I was trying to find. Nobility during this time. So, in in looking at this movie, what would you call? Is this like a? We need to save the rec center. Like, what is it? Well, since so, the show is wrapped up, what reason did they give for the, having the show was more? We need to save Downton because at some point it was. Oh, it's true. It was difficult that to to keep up, right? So they needed mm. to figure out how to change in a way that would help them keep the estate running, but to keep the estate running as an estate, not like to turn it into a museum or something weird. Um, the movie was, uh, in some ways, kind of like a defense of what they were, what they had chosen. So, like, mm -hmm. we are still in a state, we are still proud of who we are, and we want to show that we are proud of who we are, and uh -huh. nobody's going to run rush out of that. Uh -huh. But at the same time, was kind of a passing on of the estate to the younger people, uh -huh. and, like, the future of of what England becomes, is now. Mm. So, like, it's kind of this, yes, this is how the old guard ran things, and yes, it's going to be different in the future, but this estate is still going to be here, and it's still going to be a part of England and a part of people's lives. Mm. Yeah. My, my, my friend, Matt, who was on the show on our CS Lewis episode said that it's, um, indulgent and slightly Republican <laughs> because I think to his credit, like as somebody that knows a lot about the history mm. of those, that time, uh, or knows a lot about history in general, but it, it, it's, interesting when you're going at those period pieces because it seems like you want to have some like you need it in order to celebrate its um existence 
you're kind of saying like there's something about this part of history that's special, but then there's not there's actually it's actually impossible to talk about it and not be aware that things are different now. Yeah. So it it seemed to me like a, a kind of like point look back, but also showing like things have been updated and, and this is how people have changed this time. But you're saying it was good? Yes, it was very good. Um, and they made the point, like, so you're right, that, that things are very different now. Mm. But at the same time, those estates are a lot of what gives Britain its character. Uh-huh. Um, when they originated, it was literally the center of both government and culture for the local area. Uh-huh. And they were supposed to be the lords of the manors were supposed to be, you know, taking care of their people. Uh-huh. And they were trying to show how not maybe not all of the estates and people like that were still doing that, but they were. Mm. In in the how they were trying to keep the house and how they were trying to keep up with social right. stuff in the in the town. They um they were a hospital during the war. Mm. They were um you know, they would, like, defend people and help that town. It wasn't just, oh, let's keep up our state. It's mm-hmm. we're keeping this community going. Right. And I think that that's, I think that's a, good, a good way to distinguish that from stuff that was actually written in, like, esoteric times. Uh, Lindsay Ellis talks about when The Hunchback of Notre Dame was written. That guy didn't give a crap about the characters in the book. <laughs> The whole reason that that was written was that the Notre Dame, the cathedral, needed repairs, or at least it needed more money to prevent its being decrepit. And so the whole novel was commissioned as a way to ask for Notre Dame to be preserved. And it was literally, like, at least you could make the claim that the majority of the reason why it was written was not as a progressive like like the way that the Disney version right situates it. It's that it's like this is a piece of culture. Right. But right. like in in watching the little downtown that I have, it seems like the point is more about nobility and what does nobility actually mean mean. Do. Yeah. So a little bit more deep than I thought we would get into. But, but like, I think looking at it, it just seemed like it's for fans to get to return to this show, this right. cast, this place, right. and have, like, a fun movie yes. after the show is over. It was also that, and it was great. And the actors even apparently had blast coming back mm-hmm. um, and were thrilled that they were able to, to still take part in, in that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I saw part of a special we were watching on the... the like making of or whatever behind mm-hmm. the scenes looks. And they were talking to the, the couple that still, that owns the estate, the actual oh, building. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it, it's kind of partly, I don't know if it's based on them necessarily, but it is still true that way. They run it as an estate. They still, it's been in their family for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. And like, they want it to be like that. They want to be able to show off, this is what England is. This is what we have been striving to keep, you know, keep together. Mm-hmm. Even though, obviously, they don't have, like, the same, oh, they didn't show, like, having tons of staff, and they didn't have, like, a bunch of people downstairs, like, in weights, you know. But they have a lot of stuff that they are trying to keep up and keep going in that community there. Mm-hmm. And... They have like they they have tourists coming through all the time and like all this stuff. Right. But you know, it they were really, really proud that this was that they had been chosen for this. Hmm. Right. Because they were able to show all of this off. I thought it was really cute. So. Right. Yeah, so that kind of speaks to the the spirit of it. And then of course they had to suffer the crazy American dude that was there as the narrator for the behind the scenes thing. Uh-huh. I don't know where they dug the why they picked that guy to do it. It was some uh, I only know him as uh, he was one of the judges on on J Lo's dance oh. show. And okay. 
And he was, like, dancing around in the building the whole time and stuff. <laughs> and, like, he was talking to them and he was asking about, like, the last time royalty had actually stayed there. And, like, isn't the queen your grandmother? And he's all like, no, it's she's my godmother. Uh... <laughs> I am not royalty. And we were like laughing at him the whole time. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, I can't talk right today, can I? It was just really funny. They're like, why did they send this goofy American to do the show? But yeah, it was for those funny. of you who don't know, Melissa is a big fan of World of Dance. Yes. And, but that's funny. That, yes. that, that, that was, they I don't know why it's that guy. That show. But it was that guy. Um, apparently, they have much more fun reality TV than we do. Usually the British, I mean, because I've heard a lot about the British Bake Off. Oh, this. And how it's much more What's more entertaining than ours? Than the Great American Bake Off? Yeah, like, it's much more zany in the sense that, like, the the banter between the judges and, like, the two, there's two old lady hosts mm-hmm. that are, like, you know, like, the Ryan Seacrest, the MCs of the thing. And they're, they're always, like, making, like, crude jokes and like completely like off their I should watch it sometime. I know everybody loves that show. Yeah, and then but then the whole thing is that like when people go to get kicked off they don't like, it's not um, this kind of like dog-eat-dog thing. Right. Like everybody's like bawling and everybody's sad that they have to leave and all this stuff. So it's kind of... Yeah, the American Big Off was really rather nice. Mm. It wasn't wasn't as fun, but it is cute. And they're mm. they're not like that. They're not like oh you know, we want you off the show. I still haven't found like a good <clears throat> reality program with which to explore that as storytelling. Because oh, I think maybe one that I've heard of was um, excuse <coughs> me um, on on Lifetime of all places, they're starting to to do these like meta programs. Mm-hmm. So like it's still programming quote unquote for women. But they did a show called Unreal that was from the perspective of two, I think, producers on a Bachelor-like reality show. And so it's them trying to get people to seem crazy and, like, basically exploit people. And it's, like, like self-aware of that fact. Uh, And it's it's trying to frame it that way. Um, I would have thought you would do the... Do you remember Extreme Makeover, the home edition? Because mm-hmm. that always had like a story of the family, mm, right. and you'd see them while they were like on vacation, watching their house get torn apart and all this uh-huh. stuff. Like I think it was a fun structure, story right. structure. And I feel like it's funny because I'm I'm almost nostalgic for that when a lot of the because like for example Simon Cow got so into producing American Idol and then he has all these spinoff shows now. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are very similar. Whereas, like, with that one, what was cool about it was a big part of it was you they personalized the rooms for the people. And so you got an insight into what their dream house right. was. Right. And then a big part of it was usually they were very specific cases where, like, you know, you did all this for your community. So all of your, you know. Like, right. All the neighbors. Like, it would be a teacher out. and, like, all their students come and helped out and did this, like, major thing. So that was, you're right, that was kind of a unique one. Um, I went to see <laughs> The Dark Horse of the Evening, <laughs> where I tried two different times to get people to see this movie, thinking and, and, and assuming that people would not be interested, because I wasn't even sure if I wanted to see it, <laughs> because I've been burned before, with space opera movies. I was gonna say I thought you'd been burned before by Brad Pitt. What? What? No, <laughs> not, not not to my memory. He could have. I I don't remember. Um, because I usually, you, there are times every now and then where he picks a movie that I'm just like, why? Well, no, okay. So while I was watching this, I it's Ad Astra for those of you in in suspense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um the he did a movie called On. On the sea, or on the at the edge of the sea, or something. Was it on the heart of the sea? That wasn't him. No, that was Chris oh, Hemsworth. Was, yes, sorry. Different, different, different pretty different boy. Mickey, yeah, different, <laughs> different pretty boy. <laughs> um, no, but uh, I but okay. So this movie was about going into space, and my one major criticism of it 
is that they did the they Blade Runner did where it seems like they forced Brad Pitt to do a voiceover the same way they forced Harrison Ford to do a voiceover for Blade Runner, and it like completely like get you do you get the theme yet? Do you yeah, get it? Some the theme died. Um, but what it reminded me of was my the one of the reviewers I watched, Brad Jones. He's known on YouTube as the Cinema Snob. He went to see a movie where it seemed like Brad Pitt was working out his relationship problems with Angelina Jolie. Right. On right, screen. Right, right. That one. For everyone. Yes. And it because there was absolutely no plot. It's just them making weird angsty eyes at each other <laughs> for, an, for, for from what for he said. For two hours. For two hours straight. And like very seemingly veiled references to maybe things that happened in their relationship. So I was thinking about that because I was thinking, okay, if he made that movie, am I in for two the same thing but with space, space and there's no Angelina Jolie? Because that makes it even worse. Yeah, seriously. But maybe he was doing that about his dad. <laughs> but if he did, it's only the narration that really pulls me out of it. Because um, what it what it is about, it's it's like you see in the trailer. I thought they were going to get weird with alien stuff because they mention aliens. Uh, but the the basic premise is Tommy Lee Jones' character is uh, Brad Pitt's character's father, and he went into space. And there's something that happened on the base on Mars where it's sending out these electromagnetic magnetic pulses that are like ruining things on earth right so he has to go try to figure out what happened and maybe rescue his dad from whatever it is um and what i thought was nice about it was there are so in gravity in 2001 a space odyssey there seem to be these meditations about what makes us human and what is, is anything out there and stuff like that and rather than actually embedding that into the story it's just people going on about it or it's so allegorical that it could literally mean anything anything. and so like like so gravity was more of like an action thing than not but then there were like weird shots where like Sandra Bullock looks like a fetus oh yeah and things like that that were kind of like all right I see what you did but I don't know that I like it (laughs) um (laughs) But, like, in that, there were, and like I said, the narration was probably the worst offender in that regard. But it was still, like, you you could see, first of all, Brad Pitt's acting is really good. Yes. So, it you could tell from his expressions, he seems like a guy that really does miss his dad. And he's, he's trying to act brave, like, I'm going to be the one that you can count on to do this mission. But... He obviously has all these things, and part of it is you don't know what his relationship was like with his dad, and uh, you get later on that it might be like they didn't really end on good terms, so part of it, him hopes that he can at least reconcile that maybe in some way. Um, so yeah, so I thought it was really good, and it wasn't it wasn't woo. It wasn't like what is, what is weird. Woo? woo is, okay, this will be fun. So... <laughs> So, like, you know, like, flat earth people? Yes. That is woo. Oh. It is, like, when you get into, so like, far out there. pseudoscience. Okay. And you say, like, you know, that God is a metaphor, that aliens are a metaphor for God. That's a real a metaphor for, okay, so what I compared it to was Interstellar. Yeah. I like that Interstellar was ambitious, both with its, like, with its themes and with its special effects and all that stuff but at some point it just went too yeah it just far way out there because it was like oh, there are aliens spoiler alert there are aliens who are future versions of humans that have that have reached the singularity and Except so they can the singularity is time a and space case. yeah <laughs> that was what threw me off <laughs> but like it's try it's trying to make this thing about like Love conquers all, right? Yes. It's like, that's a fine theme. Yeah. But I don't know why we need to be trans-dimensional aliens yeah, in order to that. achieve this thing. 
And it, it, it's that weird recursive thing of like the aliens are the reason why they go on the spaceship to begin with. Right. So it's like, couldn't they have come up with a better, easier plan. way to accomplish all this right. crazy stuff? So apparently what needs to happen is... <laughs> Melissa just woke up. They need to go... Who was it that wrote Interstellar? Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan needs to go have a powwow with Ted Chang. Mm. And Ted Chang can school him on how to do this properly. Yeah. And then... We will get a movie by the both of them together, which will blow everyone's minds. That's what needs to happen. Okay, so that's what I would say, is that this was more of, like, the the best part of the action stuff in Interstellar. Because it was, there were thrilling parts to Ad Astra. But it was also a lot of the good um, emotional stuff from, like, Arrival. Okay. Like, it actually did a good job of playing with some sci-fi things and showing how, like, like we can really be proud of the progress that we've made in terms of a human species. But at the end of the day, the reason why we do these things is to get closer to what it means to be human as opposed to become space gods. <laughs> Which it seems <laughs> like a lot of these space movies are like, if we just poll- pollinate J- Jupiter, then... That means we'll really be human. Like, maybe for you, you can have fun. All right, do you want to go to a break, and then I can ask you what you thought of Sunset Boulevard? Oh, yes. I forgot to put that on the list. (laughs) All right, I look forward to that in a minute. All right, so So, what's what's her name? Gloria Swanson. Gloria Swanson. Played Norman Desmond. Yes. And William Holden played Mr. Gillis. Oh. The writer that is down on his luck and gets sucked into the world of this self-crazed former star, mm-hmm. who actually was Gloria Swanson had been a uh-huh. silent movie star. I think that's where I want to start. Is that like it's interesting in in our reflections on these older movies because we also I think the only other like black and white thing that we've talked about on the show is the uh, uh, Abbott and Estello meet. No, you meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and what was funny was that that kind of made me think of that that was like the first in universe, like, um, like movie universe. Like they were starting to cross over monster movies with this yeah. comedy brand that they also had. So, and in the same way, I was looking at this and I was like, this is really like a self aware movie about Hollywood, right? So like you, like to me, there aren't many people like Woody Allen is probably the only one that can get away with writing a movie about movies, and people care because mm-hmm. hey, he's Woody Allen, like he's been in the business for a while. So what's funny to me is that it's really about stardom and about like there was this era in the twenties that's being romanticized, and that. Hollywood has moved on from but the writer is like I want to write like like he, he thinks like he there are some line that doesn't really specify a specific thing that he wants to do he doesn't really complain about like he doesn't seem to romanticize silent pictures at least no like it's not really like he's on her side right away which I thought was interesting you they might have done like a foil thing where like oh, this lady's just like you and she's bonkers, so don't be like her. It was more like he was just jaded about Hollywood, and then he met somebody who was also very jaded, but was also, but was like very nihilistic. Yeah. And so I thought it was cool because we, like growing up watching the black and white movies that Dad watched, I had this feeling like that they were all cartoony, and there was like... We've we've gotten we've gotten better, Dad. Like you you should see some of the movies coming out nowadays. They're really good. <laughs> but looking at something like this, it's funny because they're they that type of movie, Sunset Boulevard, flew in the face of what was popular then. Yeah, and it was calling into question that idea of why why would it be crazy for a fifty year old actress who was an amazing star. To expect to still be able to, to be, still be, able to be in successful, movies. yeah. Because at one point he says that, like, why, why are you driving yourself crazy? Because you're, 
you know, you still want to be 25, but part of it is because she, her, of her own hubris, but also part of it is you can't be a, a well-respected actress in your 50s. And what is it about Hollywood that you can't do that? Like men who are still right. well-respected like, actors. So DeMille was an example of that, right? Because like he said that when somebody comes up to DeMille and says, Norbert Desmond's here to see you, and she must be a million years old. And he says, DeMille says, well, I wonder what that means about me. I'm old enough to be your father. Right. But he was still huge front and center in Hollywood, uh-huh. and she was not anymore. Right. And it actually made it more, like, because we've, excuse me, we've kind of talked about this with uh, watching uh, Better Call Saul. And um, the we kind of talked about, like, making characters redeemable versus making them kind of like humanized villains. And what I thought was cool about that was that I expected DeMille to be, or and all of these people in Hollywood to be like, oh, she's washed up. Nobody wants to see her. She's ugly. She's old. But what was funny about it was that there were still people that like were amazed that she was on yeah. set. They're like, oh, and, it's her. And they're yeah. all crowding around her. And they so put the light that on That was her. so cool to me because it wasn't making it unrealistic where everybody's just against her. Right. Because I think what's what makes it even more tragic is that it do, it doesn't necessarily, like, when you have a character like that that is completely, like, deluded, it's not necessarily that everybody is actually out to get you. Right. It, they were showing that for she didn't have what she dreamed of as this lifelong stardom mm-hmm. and that was enough to kind of put her over the edge right. and it made it even more upsetting when right. she you know ends up being this tragic and i caught a reference thing. to that watching it this time demille says something about reporters having basically destroyed her mm. so oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it may have been too that like either there was a scandal or she kept trying to be into in younger movies when she was too old to be in those mm-hmm. parts or something and did they like ripped her one in a review or something and totally mm. threw her out of her career. Oh. But whatever it was, it doesn't seem like it was necessarily her fault, although she apparently became some something of a horrible person to work with at some point mm-hmm. <laughs> in her career too. But it was just interesting the kind of references they made to what it is that threw her off. Mm. And then, then she just was like, well, I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. daydream and live my own little world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and another thing that I appreciated, and I feel like you could you could debate about this. I think it speaks to the quality of the movie that you can actually discuss it as opposed to it being an open and shut mm-hmm. thing, where there was a young, um, uh, this young girl that worked as a reader, and it, the movie starts out with her being kind of an antagonist because uh, she hates his, the writer's yeah, script. And what's what's interesting about her is that she starts being interested in the writer, but um, at the same time, there's this interesting thing where rather than it being like, for example, when we were watching for for this other project that Melissa and I did, um, we watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and with that film, it seemed like no one questioned. Oh. <laughs> Minor technical difficulties. <laughs> no, it was not questioned that this Dr. Man, Oog, listen to Oog, <laughs> Oog, make no mistakes. And, and nobody questioned his authority no. at any time. Whereas with this, what was interesting was he at some point gets to the point where this random go getter wants to make it in Hollywood. She wants to get out of her station and recognizes that there, that he has some talent. It just needs to be developed, right? So at some point, rather than just start shacking up with her because this is convenient, I'm kind of being badgered by this crazy old Hollywood lady, it would be very nice if I could just be with this very sane, intelligent lady who happens to be, have a boyfriend. Who is my, my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rather than just rush into that, he actually says, like, just take the idea and go do it. Yeah. Like, you're smart enough to do it yourself. I don't know why you, you know, you know like, 
need to be with me. So I think that that it, I just feel like that was a I th- that was a small sign of growth <laughs> in an industry where usually that type of thing is in question because this is the leading man. Right. The leading man just deserves to get anybody he wants. Right. I thought it was interesting because I think you could make the case that it's still provincial in the sense that it's like you you're really not supposed to care that there's this guy who wants to marry her and because he's not the leading man, you're like you're not crying all these tears because yeah. what's his face isn't gonna get the girl. Um but it like I think you can make the case that it is they they acknowledge that this character has the agency that she is pursuing him of her own volition. Right. And it's not, not like just she doesn't need to be protected by him. She doesn't she really doesn't need him in order to succeed. Right. It shows that she has intelligence and drive of her own. It's more she just wants to be with him because she likes the fact that he is um she she recognizes some talent in him. And that seems to be like one of the only reasons. And he's witty. <laughs> like there 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 isn't much I think the biggest part of it is that if you were if you were a little bit older, uh, you might be able to tell that he's pretty like depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and that like maybe he's not the best horse yeah, in that. She all. wasn't really catching on. I also like the backstory they gave her. Because normally, if for the this kind of character that's just like random chick that's gonna fall for leading man, right. you don't usually even get to hear why she's there. So not only is she working trying to become a writer, she had originally been trying to be an actress mm, and actually right. paid to have a nose job so that she would be able to right. be an actress and still didn't get the job. And she's like, "Well, screw that! I don't need to be in front of the camera. I'm gonna work behind the camera." Mm-hmm. And she worked her butt off to get there. Right. So I think that and the and the him telling her finally telling the main Gloria Swanson's character finally telling her like you're fifty stop acting like you're twenty five that's the end of the world yeah that's not those were two very woke lines in a fifties yeah movie like it's still something that people deal with today and it's nice to see that that was something that was being you know. That was a message that starts yeah. even that early. Um, uh, so I, I guess before we leave, we can talk about some random Randomness. things that we're nerding out about. Um, I'm really enjoying Medical Assault. I tried to watch it a little bit after rewatching Breaking Bad with uh, my grandmother, uh, who was like, I'm literally sitting on her Breaking Bad pillows, pillows right now. <laughs> so she really liked it. Um, but I, for whatever reason, it just there was other stuff on, so I didn't watch it. But holy crap, like it is! Yeah, it is amazing. It is the continued genius of Vince Gilligan. Yes, um, I love and, you, Vince Gilligan. <laughs> and uh, what's his? Oh, I forget his name. But the actor that plays Saul uh, can can you know? There's no question that he can he can't carry a whole series oh, yeah. by himself. Yeah. Uh, and as as always, I'm looking forward to. El Camino that comes out. Oh yeah, in October. <laughs> um, and then we're also watching Dark Crystal. Still, uh, Melissa wanted this. to uh, okay, pay, look. pay small tribute to. Look, I gotta tell you about this guy. All right, he is f- three foot four. So the <laughs> and available. So the Gelfling main characters have just lost several loved ones and are sitting on the edge of a desert that they yes. need to cross. They're, they are literally at the midpoint of the story. To get to the MacGuffin. <laughs> and they have a ceremony to mourn their loved ones. And in the morning, come riding in all over the desert on a giant flying manta ray <laughs> is this... It is Is this prince. This, I don't even think he's a prince. His name is Rakir... He has this painted stuff on his face that he comes off of the flying manta ray and is debonair and gives the princess this, like, necklace to protect her and says that he felt their pain from across the sands and he is there to guide them in their quest. I'm like, what in the world is happening? This thing is a puppet. And I'm like, this man needs to be, like, a leading thing in Hollywood right now because... So we have dubbed him the Arabian Death Prince, and he is... Yeah, because that's... What's funniest to me is that it... Play, that see, this, to me, is to me is the 
the heart of comedy, right? They play all of this, the manta ray, the, the way that the guy looks, the way that he talks, how he presents himself, all of it, they play it straight. Yeah. That in itself is actually very impressive. Yes. It, like, they make him kind of like a Johnny Depp-esque character. Oh, they call him a death prince because his clan of Gelfling are like a death cult of some right. guy. I'm getting, yes. So, but what makes it funny to me is that the main character, Rianne, and uh, a, a kind of third character, um, Hup, are two guys that have various levels of crushes on <laughs> the, t- the leading uh, women of the show, right? And so what's funny is that... Well, he- right now it seems like they're both into deep, which is a problem. They're both in what? They're both into deep. Oh, yes. But, so, okay. If it comes down between Rian and Hup, I'm telling you now, Hup is going to win because he's going to beat the crap out of the other I, guy with listen, a spoon. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> It's going off the you rails. You need to watch this show My so you point. know what I'm talking about. I was making a point. Wait, <laughs> was that? What's funny about it is that they start freaking out about him and whether they can trust him. And to me, what makes it funny is that if they had made the Arabian Death Prince, what was it? Name Rafiki. Rakir. <laughs> if they had made a big deal about him, as if he were like, if they literally played him like Johnny Depp, where he's kind of kooky, then it wouldn't have been funny. But the fact that they did all that stuff, and you're like, you're supposed to take it seriously as a guy comes out of nowhere on a flying manta ray, um, and <laughs> you don't question it. Yeah, you're, but, you're just like, but yeah. That, that, that part right. of it is that he is from this clan that where Rianne says that they worship death, but we have no way of knowing yet yeah, what, what the truth is. Um, and so yeah, so that's that's where that is. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say about uh, Forgotten Storm before we part ways with our gentle viewers? So Forgotten Storm is a novel I have had from uh, Kyanite Publishing, which mm-hmm. is the uh, people I have currently going to be publishing a story with in November, um, and. I was shocked at first because I was not expecting quite the level of steaminess oh, happening in that book. Let, let me let me preface this, or an interview style. Okay. Is there anything that you have read that you would because I would make the case that something like Jane Austen is like it's romance, but it's not. It was before the era where romance was a was a genre like was a marketing that. term. Yes, you know what I mean. So is there something that you could say that you have, whether it's it can be in in a, in a novel form or anything, that you would say your, was your baseline that made you think that this was particularly, um, you, you could say steamy, you could say, you know. Uh, um, well, it's true what, because what I, don't, it I don't read what is generally called romance now. Mm-hmm. Uh. The um, not really, because all the romances I read are weird. Not to say that this isn't a strange one too, because this is a paranormal romance, right? So it's vampires mm-hmm. and stuff. Right. Like I was expecting some level of stupidness to happen oh. because it's a vampire story. So I've read the only other things I can remember that are like steamy rope that have steamy romance elements mm-hmm. would be like I tried reading the prequel to Flowers in the Attic, mm-hmm. which to some level is also a horror story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in my and I mind, read, uh, one of the Sue Grafton mystery novels, which was mm-hmm. is also has some steamy romantic stuff right. going on in it. Because you, 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 everyone, everyone who knows me knows. That <laughs> I think if if you have, have have been listening to this, you're aware that I have one foot in fun genre popcorn fiction and literary the literary past, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about doing and, and planning to do a bad boys of fiction thing in Evil Expo in January. And in thinking about it, I've come across Phantom of the Opera and Beauty and the Beast as two kind of like historical precursors to what we now understand as supernatural right. romance. Right. right. So what's interesting is that now you have 
things like, in terms of public consciousness, you have cutesy things like the Beauty and the Beast cartoon. Mm. And then you have things like Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. Where it's like realism, but a heightened realism of what it means to be like this sexy, edgy, bad boy thing. And it seems like on one side you have this like super provincial, like the whole point is that girl will make boy less bad by end of thing. And then you have what seems to me to be a completely unrealistic version of that, (laughs) where guy is complete, total, actual monster. And magically by the end of thing, he is sane and like completely provincial. Right. Because it seems like that's a big criticism about in the middle because Mm. well not even in the middle. Maybe toward Let me ask this. What age range would you put it in? Oh, this is decidedly adult. Okay. Because after so like I was reading I got it actually I won a contest and got it for free. Oh, okay. So um I was just so excited because I was like, oh, cool, vampire novel. That sounds fun. Uh-huh. I neglected to read the part of how erotic most of her, that author's stuff is. Uh-huh. So I that was my fault for not researching ahead of time what was going to be in here. Mm-hmm. But all that aside, the whole, I know, and we talked about this before, we're talking about the fan of the opera, the idea of woman wants bad boy because woman also has dark side of herself right. that she is hoping to experience with the said bad boy. Mm. So that's what this was kind of like. She was, she has issues and enjoys certain bad stuff. Not mm. bad stuff. I shouldn't say bad stuff, but like edgy <laughs> stuff uh. and is afraid to share that with anybody because she thinks that they will hate her for it. Mm. And then finds dude who also likes the same stuff. Mm. And they don't reveal that to each other right away, but like uh-huh. eventually they figure out, oh wait, we're both good for this, so it's all cool. And they end up together at the end oh. because of it. Not because of that other stuff. It's very complicated <laughs> stuff because... with vampire court nonsense and prophecies going on. Like it's yeah. there's there's a whole lot of world building in there. She's got a lot of cool monsters. It's fun. Uh-huh. But like I said So I, you think it, it was worth having read it? Yeah. Okay. Because I think what's what's weird is that I find myself with this, with I have because I don't read it, I have a very abstract reaction to the genre mm-hmm. in the sense that like on on the one hand, my reaction to things that are quote unquote edgy, I would say like in reacting to the romance that's in the Last Jedi, it's kind of but it's kind of benign in the sense that even though I think it's poorly written it's such a small part of the proceedings Mm -hmm. that it's pretty easy to ignore whereas when you get to something like Fifty Shades of Grey what's interesting is that because it's in the public consciousness it could be very easy for me as a conservative Christian man to come out as a hard this thing offends me because it's not a biblical portrayal of a romance right so what's funny about it is that like I could get cool points from a certain demographic for going that direction. But what's weird is that like it's not as if that to me is this literally egregious thing that requires any of my direct attention. Yeah, no. And it's 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 all it's just odd because it's like I don't just in general, I don't perceive morally wrong thing happening in this text as being what actually offends me because these are fake people. (laughs) If this was an actual thing happening, I would give an actual person advice about how to live their lives. But I'm hoping nobody actually picks up a book with the idea that I'm going to follow what these people do as how I live. (laughs) And and to be fair, this isn't generally my style of book so I probably won't read anything else like this like I'll mm. try to make sure I don't just because it's not me mm. like I'm sure there's loads of people that are going to love it but mm. it's not me right. however I will say the one part that did appeal to me is because I one of my guilty pleasures is Underworld and this felt very mm. like Underworld 
Yeah, because uh, so that uh, that's a good way to, to finish up because I feel like there's in that genre where you're getting a supernatural romance. What what it seems like it's doing for my estimation as a guy looking for some a partner in life. <laughs> not, not that I'm. Please, Megan, don't chase me. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm. I'm not saying I'm currently looking but my and as far as the abstract is concerned guys see romance is join this adventure with me right so what i like about supernatural romance in those cases and like underworld and matrix and stuff like that is like okay he's in love but you're both badasses that fight the darkness together (laughs) and so what that romanticizes in my opinion from a male perspective is I we no longer want to romanticize the woman that just wants a big dowry and everything taken care of right. and you're all going to twirl your thumbs for the rest of eternity. The idea is more that there is good and evil and you're going to fight for the good in the face of evil together. Right. Um so that that's what appeals to me. What if you if I don't know if you have a way to summarize it, but if you would give the female perspective of why underworld and that kind of thing appeals to you. Uh, and, and I don't know if the priest falls into that too. Oh yeah, I would think so. Okay. The floor is yours. <laughs> um, so some of it is, I think, like I was saying with the, with the Phantom of the Opera deal and, and stuff like that is women also have mm-hmm. darker sides like that, you know? Uh-huh. And for a long time, you know, this whole Disney princess idea, ideal was idolized where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, they're pristine and they're perfect. And they're, you know, the whole virgin slash whore ah, problem yes. where you're either one or the other. Yeah. And women have desires too. women have rage at evil. Women have <laughs> sexual desires too. And that never really gets explored in those ideals where the woman is this, you know, virtual thing in an ivory tower that all oh. the guys are fighting to get to. These ones, I think, appeal a lot more to women where it says, yes, you have these things too that you want. And you can find a guy who is happy that you want that too and share that desire together. Oh. Instead of it just being about, well, let me, you know, bring home dragon's heads when you want to actually oh. go out and fight the dragon too. Like, it, it just... Yeah, but that's cool. That's cool to get that perspective of it being about the desire aspect of it. Um, and that that's something that is, it's like, it seems to complement that, you know, that idea. Because that, it's one of those things that it's, I think it's very hard to codify a romance in such a way that doesn't seems to make it myopic yeah. and that like a man needs a woman to see romance the way that they see it in order to have it be fulfilling seems to make it seems to make it look like, you know, this is all that romance is. I think it's very, it's difficult to write romance in such a way that it accounts for both perspectives within the thing. Right. Um, Which another call out to better call Saul Oh yes, Elegant writes women like yes. nobody's Here, business. Here's how we will we finish this because and I I was telling Melissa that there's nothing more attractive to me than how Skyler and Kim are written in both Breaking Bad and this because both of them are highly intelligent. Um, both of them have their own motivations for being in the story, right? <laughs> yeah, um, and at the same time, are very honest and and vulnerable right. in different aspects. And so they're not being seen as, okay, this person needs to be completely masculine all the time and be, uh, you know, the symbol of feminist power in order to be a, a character. Right. At, they are strong women. Yes. Who are, are, are that are, like you're saying about, how romance, good romance shows desire, that desire of fulfilling life and want to share that with the the oftentimes very foolish man <laughs> that is in their lives. And it shows the the 
the rise and fall of those characters, like you were saying, completely independent of most of the time the, the what the man is doing. Yeah. They're not completely driving their plot. Right. Um, oftentimes, they'll put them in situations. Right. Where, the, where their things clash, which mm-hmm. is a lot more interesting than just the man roughshodding over whatever the female's part is in the story. Right. They actually both have goals, and those goals clash, which is what makes right. the drama more interesting. So basically, he wrote just people, and the <laughs> fact that they happen to be female is kind of irrelevant. Right. Except for the fact that the main guy might actually want them. But other than that, especially Kim. I love Kim, like, so much. Oh, yeah. On Better yeah. Call Saul. And, like, and that's kind of what got us talking about noir and wanting to watch some type of overboard, is that it is very, it is a very noir setup. Because they're, like, smoking in the parking lot together yeah. with silhouettes awesome and lighting. all this stuff. <laughs> all right. So uh, when, when has that become? It is the first weekend, no, second weekend in November. All right, so you might see Melissa at Mepicon. If, you, if you look hard look it up, enough. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, we're at all the usual places, Unboxing Story on the Twitters and the Facebooks, and uh, Unboxing Story Podcast at gmail.com if you want to reach us. Or you can leave us a voicemail yep. at our anchor page. All right, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Peace. <laughs>